Okay, I guess we're ready to start. Teacher's late again. <laughs> At least not as bad as last week. <laughs> Is that guy going to show up or what? <laughs> anyway, thank you guys for coming out. Another uh, another warm day. I actually turned the air conditioner on at uh, at lunchtime today, so it was cooling off. It's it helped. Had I turned it on this morning, maybe it would even be better. But it's not too bad in here. Anyway, we are still in Acts four, and uh, Alan, good to have you out again. Appreciate you coming coming again. Good to fellowship with you. And of course, the question has always been asked: What does the American church need most? Of course, that's a setup question. That could be anything, right? But many would uh, rightly say we desperately need revival, right? <laughs> And uh, but but how does revival come? And if you look through church history, you'll notice that um, a strong dose of persecution has always done the trick. <laughs> but um, that's historically, and we know that uh, persecution actually uh, throughout the Book of Acts actually made the church stronger. Uh, it burns impurity out of the church and shows the ones that are for real, and of course the ones who are nominal on the side, uh, church attenders and such. Uh, they may just drop off when that happens, but it does drive the church to prayer, and I think that's one of our key themes as we look at tonight. Uh, uh, prayer uh, unites the church. Uh, it expands the church. And, of course, you look at uh, the communism and China, and but all that during that time, how God was using the, the church there and so many other places. And, um, you know, we have... We have general trials, each of us. We, we know that persecution uh, could definitely be on the uh, horizon and such, and, and it is in different places. We talk about that quite a bit. But um, when we have adequate theology, adequate knowledge of how God works and how God works during uh, times of trial for the church, then it helps us to be able to respond in the way that, uh, that honors God. And so when those trials hit, um, people may rage at God, but people who are sunk deeply into His Word, then they know that um, they it's not a time to grow bitter, but it's a time actually to, get, to grow stronger. And as we look at our text tonight, we see uh, the early church and how it responded to persecution, Peter and John, and uh, they had a, a good taste of it immediately from religious people. And uh, so, so it goes. Um, how much it's gone down through uh, the history of that, but uh, people responded by drawing near to God in uh, in prayer. And uh, I think it shows the care also, as 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 people draw near to God, they also draw near to each other, and they have a, a real desire for the the members and the body of Christ. So. That's what we're going to kind of look at tonight, uh, responding to uh, persecution and bringing out the aspect of uh, prayer and uh, unity of the church. Father, we thank You for Your great grace, Your amazing grace. Thank You for Your display of Yourself throughout the Word of God and how You've worked in lives. Uh, Lord, And You continue to do it. May we be able to focus on You and to bring Your name up to an exaltation even more than ever, to have a bigger and a higher view, to have that high view of God, to have a high view of Scripture, and to let it actually 
sink into our hearts so that we be changed. It's, it's Your work in us. And uh, help us to be obedient uh, to this Word and to, to be strong in You. We, we certainly need that help for without You we are absolutely weak. We, we are nothing without You. So we uh, depend upon You, depend upon Your Holy Spirit tonight as we just uh, learn further about what You have for us. In Your Son's name, Amen. Well, let's turn to uh, our Acts 4. And we've been in this chapter for just, uh, what, a week or two? Um, the first part of it was where you have the... Of course, we know about the lame man. We, we know about that story and then been healed. And then in chapter 4, we see where Peter and John are actually arrested. And uh, it's because of the name of Christ, right? There's no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. And so that that is the story. That's We believe in Jesus Christ as the only way to God. And so the name of Jesus is actually forbidden by the religious Jews who um, knew full well about the Messiah. And they never want that name mentioned again. And then they will let Peter and John go because... The crowd has been too impressed by the miracle that has just happened with this 40-year-plus man uh, who had not walked, and now all of a sudden he is, and everybody knew it. Everybody in Jerusalem knew it very well, what had happened. So they had to let him go. Uh, I I like it in in Acts 4.21. We left off somewhere around this area last week. When they had threatened them further, they let them go finding no basis on which to punish them. They don't have anything on them. On account of the people, because they were all glorifying God for what had happened. My, God gets famous here, doesn't He? Glorifying God. That's what they did. For the man was more than 40 years old and on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. God did His thing, worked through Peter and um, John, and um, now... We see how not only they have responded in this, that they know that, hey, listen, we're not going to shut down naming Christ who did this. We're going to continue to do that. Uh, we must obey God rather than men. Uh, where, uh, where it's possible and where we are supposed to, yes, we obey the government. But when it goes against who God is and His character, His Word, then we have to, um, I guess, do the the civil thing, uh, and that's go against the civil government and go against um, what they would do that would be anti-God. But usually that's not the case. But when it is, then uh, there's definitely a decision to be made. Now, after that, this is where it starts involving um, the other people in, in, uh, in the early church at that time. And so they get involved in the persecution that uh, that's just now happening to uh, Peter and John, or just happened. Let's pick it up in verse 23. When they had been released, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priest and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is You who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David, your servant said, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? 
The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His Christ. For truly, in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod, Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. Now this is praise to God. Ultimate praise. It's ultimate prayer. Uh, they're not praying that um, they be delivered from any other persecutions or everything becomes more comfortable for them. They start off with just giving uh, God glory and honor and, and praise. And it's all about who He is and what Jesus did. And they're focusing on God. I mean, it's a God-centered prayer. Um, and, of course, we, we see the actions of that as you continue on with the rest of the chapter. But there's some things here uh, that we can take note here uh, in these sections uh, about responding to persecution. One is affirming our commitment to this holy great God. It makes us praise Him more. Persecution will do one of two things. It will either drive one away from God or it will drive you closer to God. One or the other. And we see here God's people are definitely driven closer to God than, than even ever before. And uh, so this is uh, there, there's four things we're going to get out of this about commitment to God. We affirm our commitment through corporate prayer. Um, it's great to have individual prayer. We should be doing that always. Praying always, without ceasing. Praying every day. Praying constantly. Um, but praying with God's people. There's something special about when God's people come together and pray. Corporate prayer. And so their prayer actually is spontaneous here. It wasn't anything that was written out. Um, it, de- it definitely was something written out. They based it on the Word of God, but it was like here's what they started doing. They, they all joined together in one accord. Um, here you have the prisoners, the Christian prisoners, released. They go to their own companions, their own people. They report it. They tell what happened with the chief priest and the elders. Hey, this sounds familiar. What happened to Jesus, right? And they're putting this all together and they're starting to think about Scripture and, and how this has all come through. And so, with one accord, they quote a Scripture. With one accord, all, all together. And what corporate prayer does, it really gets our focus on God. Not just on, you know, health problems are one thing and, and we, we definitely want to pray for people's health. We, we don't have anything against that. But where does prayer really start at? Our Father who art in heaven. We start with a focus on who He is and then we come down to, you know, our needs and such. But the right focus is on, on who He is and that gets things started off right. And of course, what better way to get your prayers right is whenever it's focused on God's Word. If you're praying God's Word, you're praying Scriptures, you can't go wrong, can you? 
And so that's exactly what what they're doing here. I, I, so often it's so easy to get focused on ourselves and what we tend to go through. And yeah, we do need God's help on that. We do, and we don't want to forget prayer in that. But um, the biggest thing is to see how this how this fits in with, with God's will, with His plan, with His purpose. Um, we might want to know what God is doing, and He may not tell us, or He may, He may show us, but. The thing is, it's it's about his kingdom, and uh, we can we can fit in in there and what what it's what's going on. And so that's why Jesus taught them whenever he said, "Here's what I want you to pray: Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed, holy is your name. Everything about you, all your attributes, it talks about the kingdom coming and His will being done. Um, so." Um, they definitely get off on the right foot here. Um, and I think it, yeah, give us this day our daily bread. Then after all of that, after we focus on Him and we adore Him, you know, what is it? Remember the old um, ACTS, Acts, Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, and Supplication? Each one of those. That's kind of how that, that prayer... Uh, Kind of builds, I guess you can say. Actually, it builds from God Himself, and then the rest of it is how uh, He's going to work in our own lives. So uh, it's interesting as as they come together. It is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. He starts off with creation. They still start off with a uh, creation verse. Matter of fact, it's dealing with the sovereignty of God. Um, as as we go along through this uh, this section of prayer, they're lifting their voices up, quoting this scripture. Um, I think this uh, this verse 24 uh, comes out of um, actually he's going to be going into Psalms, but I think we're taking this out of like uh, Exodus and Nehemiah and Psalms about the Creator God. How many how often do you see? where um, there's a prayer or a psalm, the one who made the heaven and the earth and the seas and all that is in them, right? You see that quite frequently. Um, this is this is about the absolute sovereignty of God. Yeah, if he can create, then he can take care of any kind of little persecution or anything. Let's say Obama, who is our president, becomes king. We don't have any more presidents, let's say. And he becomes ruler and king. And he starts doing all the things that he wants to do, which he's been able to pretty well do anyway, hasn't he? But all of a sudden, he has total control. He is the sovereign. He is the king. And then we're going to be all upset and everything, right? Well, you know, actually, it's not that we should be happy about that, but the first thing that we should do is focus where? Focus back at God. Focus that, oh, here's the Creator God. He's the one that's controlling this. If He can create this universe, He can do whatever He wants, and He can work and cut through this whole deal. It's an evil world anyway. You know, the prince of the power of the air rules in that sense, but God is overall. But in the uh, about the sovereignty of God, 
in the in the Confession of Faith of 1689, the Baptist Confession. Um, that's their original confession. It was really good. Here's what it says about the um, sovereignty of God. It's really good. From all eternity, sounds like scripture, really. God decreed that all should happen in time, and in this He did freely and unalterably, consulting only His own wise and holy will. He didn't consult any person. <laughs> Yet in so doing, he does not become in any sense the author of sin, nor does he share responsibility for sin with sinners, right? Neither by reason of his decree is the will of any creature whom he has made violated, nor is the free working of second causes put aside, rather is it established. In all these matters the divine wisdom appears, as also does God's power and faithfulness in effecting that which he has purposed. That's the one who created. That's the one who's controlling. That's the kind of God that they have in mind here now when they have gone through something that's pretty rough. The first time that the persecution has happened in the history of the church. Now, of course, we know persecutions are in the Old Testament, so you know, in one sense I've got to qualify that. But since uh, the time of Christ and now you have this body growing, God foreknows everything, right? We know that. God also ordains everything in that He can do what He wants. Whatever happens, we know um, is God is going to control, no matter how much man wants to be doing His thing. Um, We've seen in our lifetime some of the presidents who've been elected who would uh, be anti-word of God. Yep, sure did. He it says Romans 13, and he's the one that uh, gives them the rule, but he will. Just like he's always done, he will also bring punishment on those who do not abide by his word as they're leading. So he quotes that great uh, thought there that's repeated throughout the Old Testament. says, who by the Holy Spirit, and they're going to quote again from another passage, Barb. Yep, drip, drip. Yep. I think they use that technique um, in certain places, don't they, where they have a water drip? I hope that's not for you back there. (laughs) So, um, the Holy Spirit, actually, as, as they're speaking this, they're saying the Holy Spirit inspired David to write this next quote that they have. And it's like they memorized this. They knew this psalm. And let's turn back to there. It's talking about why do the Gentiles rage? They knew this. And I have to wonder if there are more than just a few people quoting this as it's going on. And I don't think they have PowerPoint at that time. (laughs) They have a good memory here. And in Psalm 2.2, here's what they're drawing from. They're saying, oh yeah, David wrote of this kind of thing happening. And of course, it, it applies all through down 
the history of mankind. When there have been rulers who are totally against God and they make fun of God, and here's Psalm 2, and they quote the first two verses. Why are the nations in an uproar? In my passage over in Acts, why the Gentiles rage? And the peoples devise a vain thing. The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart, cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then He will speak to them in His anger and terrify them in His fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain, my king, my anointed Christ. This is for us today. Yeah, yeah, that's good. I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Look at this, this is great. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance. You will own them. They are going to be yours. And the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and you shall shatter them like earthenware. So whatever the nations are doing, whatever the world is doing, all those anti-God leaders, and we know that God's going to take care of it. Now therefore, O king, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. He actually is a kind God saying, take warning. You know, he's, he's showing mercy here. You know, show discernment. Use your wisdom. And he tells them this in verse 11. This is the key. Worship the Lord with reverence. That's what it's about. And rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son. Bow down to Him. That He not become angry. And you perish in the way. For His wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Boy, that's a song. They knew that song. And they said it. And there they were. They were in a real persecution. It happened right before their eyes. If we saw that happen, if we saw a couple of pastors being taken away and put in jail, we'd be up in arms, wouldn't we? Barb. Surprised he's even still alive. Yeah. They've probably gone to about an inch of his death, I'm sure. But uh, the Lord's going to use that situation to glorify himself. I don't know how that the end is going to come out, but I can tell you that um, God is definitely working in that. And we sure, I think the whole body of Christ should be praying for, for those men like like church did here. But it's these guys right here in Psalm 2, wouldn't you say? It's it's along the same lines. And God will um, finally judge that. That's been going on for thousands of years. Sure has. When's it going to end? Christ comes back. Yeah, but 
they're looking for that hope right now. And I've heard the story that Barb's talking about. I heard another one this morning. Pastor in Baghdad gets up every morning. First thing he does is put on a flag jacket. Wow. Because they're trying to kill him. They've killed most of the church. The church that hasn't been killed has fled, and most of them have come to Chicago, I understand. In Chicago? Really? group of people from Iraq that are living, Christians living in Chicago from Iraq. He's staying there, got a few people yet that are still Christians, but he wears a flag jacket every day because, not the government, because there is no real government that's governing that, but it's just the people that are so against him. Wow. And he's still there, though. He's still there. He's still there. We hear it from all over the world. And uh, time is ticking. You know, it's always been that way. You believe in God. We, of course, you read here in Psalms, that's, that was a thousand years even before Christ. And you see that people are warring against this great Creator God, the one who created them. And uh, it goes on, doesn't it? But uh, you, you see these promises, and these people here, they didn't quote, we don't have the whole psalm quoted there, but we see those first two verses, and uh, we know exactly where that, that psalm is headed and what it's saying right there in those two verses. And so, you know, they're drawing out of a lot of different places, you know, other psalms and others talking about the Creator, and then they, they say this famous one, because it was real. It was really happening. And uh, so they're, they're, and they're saying against the Lord and against His Christ. And in Psalm, that's what it says. It's saying the same thing. Against the Lord and against His anointed. Which is the same thing. Anointed is Christos or in the Hebrew, Mashiach. Which means anointed or um, Messiah. How accurate that was. And that was a thousand years before Christ. And you know what I find interesting here? It says in verse 25 that the Holy in, in Acts 4 that the Holy Spirit inspired David to write that, right? So there that you have the Holy Spirit. In Psalm 2, you have God speaking here, and then he's also God the Father, and then he's also talking about who? The Messiah. The Son, he even calls him, S-O-N. We have the Trinity all involved in those two verses, which is really one passage. David was inspired by the Holy Spirit to speak what the Father was saying about the Lord's anointed, which is Christ, the Messiah. Yes, the triune God is in the Old Testament. Uh, makes a lot of practical difference for us today, too, as we read something historical. And, of course, you guys are applying this and you're talking about things that are happening across the world and we know full well we don't have to be reminded it could happen to us. But um, without God's sovereign will, I think we would have cause for fear. But with God's sovereign will, and seeing how these people respond, even though we don't, we wouldn't enjoy, hey, bring it on, Lord, let's have some persecution. You know, we're going to be strong. But, you know, um, he, he will do that. Uh, but at the same time, um, the forces of evil are never too much for him. 
And so what kind of comfort for us is in this? I think it, there's an, a huge amount of comfort as the early church was uh, drawing upon on this to be able to uh, to go to the next day. So they're praising God. So um, they've, they've been affirming God and um, they apply His Word. They apply Psalm 2. They know that God triumphs. It's foolish to fight against the Sovereign Lord, the One who created. It's absolutely ridiculous. And that's what the world does. And as we look at this, you'll see that the best prayers that you will see are always based on Scripture. They're based upon what we know to be truth. And there they are in their prayer using, using Scripture. Um, look in Proverbs 1. Verse 24. Let's take a read on this Proverbs. This is about God's wisdom and Him warning fools and scoffers. Because I called and you refused, I stretched out my hand and no one paid attention. There's a good, kind God. And you neglected all my counsel and did not want my reproof. I will also laugh at your calamity. Sounds like the Psalms, doesn't it? Psalm 2. I will mock when your dread comes. When your dread comes like a storm, and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call on me, but I will not answer. It's too late. They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. They would not accept my counsel. They spurned all my reproof. So they shall eat of the fruit of their own way and be satiated with their own devices, for the waywardness of the naive will kill them, and the complacency of fools will destroy them. But he who listens to me shall live securely. Here's our promise. He who lives... He who listens to me shall live securely and will be at ease from the dread of evil. That's a great promise for all His people. I think it's great. After having all those verses and then right there at the end, but the one who listens to me, the one who responds to me. So that's quite the deal. When you know God's Word and you have it deep in your heart, you have it in your minds, even memorize some, before the crisis even hits, you're prepared. You're ready. So when it does, then you can have something to, to draw upon. And that's what they did. Boy, they drew upon some great passages, didn't they? As they prayed. It was the perfect prayer. And it's written down. It was inspired. <laughs> Always. <laughs> Better than I deserve. So now we move into verse 27. This is fascinating. Uh, we're affirming our commitment to, by God by imitating Christ. Now, He happens to be God's holy servant, and you'll see that twice in this section. In verse 27, you'll see it there once. For truly in this city, here in Jerusalem, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus. And so this is making Psalm 2 be fulfilled. 
It says it, ha- it happened right here in the city. Psalm 2 happened right here. We saw it. It was the anointed one. It was the Messiah. Man, that had to like put chills down people's spines in a good way. Have you ever been excited when you discovered a Scripture that just came to life? And it came to life before them as they're quoting it. And there were people gathered against your holy servant. Let's, uh, let's stop there for a moment. Holy servant. And at the end of verse 30, you will see this again right at the end. Uh, talking about signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And we talked about servant before. Jesus is the servant. He's the suffering servant. Isaiah 52, Isaiah 53. He's the Messiah. He's the one who serves God. But that word is not the word for slave. A lot of times we think of the doulos and bond servant. But here... And we've seen it before. Servant is like an ambassador. He is God's servant in in that sense, um, and and he's holy. You know, he's he's the one without sin, and he's perfect, and he's separated. Twice this prayer refers to Jesus as God's holy servant, and so when when we see Paul writing, how does he usually relate to himself and others? And the rest of the church. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, or doulos, there's your word there, Barb, right? Which means, really, slave. Yeah. Uh-huh. That, and that's that same word that we dealt with before. And, and, and it's in the sense of, of, of being the ambassador for God, being His holy servant. But um, the slave, when you think of that, um, and not only Paul, the apostles thought of themselves as being slaves, the idea of seeing ourselves as slaves today seems to be rather repulsive to people, especially since you go back just a little over a century ago, and of course you have the slave issue, and a lot of people don't like refer to that word, but we must use it because it's very biblical. This is one of the biggest terms for the the people of Christ. They're they're slaves of Christ. Um, We're slaves. We should not expect to receive wonderful treatment as slaves because the world uh, should be hating us. (laughs) So we, we may not be the most liked group of people. They may favor others that... uh, but slaves don't expect to receive that. Slaves had no rights, due losses, no rights. Uh, they were to have absolute submission to their master. Master could do whatever he wanted. There was to be an unconditional obedience. There wasn't, uh, well, let's just work this out. Let me think about it a little bit here. You know, there wasn't any negotiating. A slave was a slave and he did whatever his master would tell him to do. The slave had no right to even complain. The slave uh, sometimes would have to do unreasonable things. Hey, how we doing? Grab a chair. Grab a chair. Is unreasonable. It has to obey. Would have to obey uh, whenever there would be a question. Uh, or maybe a complaint. He wasn't to do that, but he was to obey. Uh, and so that's going back 
2,000, 3,000, 4,000 years ago. And in our case, we know that the Master is not going to have His people do something that would be bad or evil or something that would hurt us or destroy us. He has our eternal welfare in His mind all the time. The mindset of God's holy servant, Jesus being the holy servant, uh, the mindset there is to do the will of the what? The Father. There's where you get the idea, like in, in, in our Acts 4.27, when he, where he says the holy servant, Jesus, is that whenever He was here, and always, but whenever He was here walking as the man, and at the same time being God, He was here to do the will of the Father. Isn't that beautiful? He served Him in a perfect way. Of course, that triune God is an absolute, how can you say it, uh, perfect union and communion all the time. They've never, never, ever had one disagreement. Absolute communion. Still under the Father's will. So the Holy Servant, Jesus. Is In this passage you read, it says the Holy Servant, Jesus. Then up in verse 25 it calls David <coughs> thy servant. Mm-hmm. And then in verse 29, it's talking about them. They're talking about themselves. It says they're bond servants. And that's the doulos. Different than the Holy Servant, Jesus. Exactly. Even though we are to be like Him, at the same time we know that He is, uh, he is our Savior and He served the, the Lord in perfect will. And of course, we are to emulate that as being obedient and desiring to do His will. And so we are doulosses. We are those bond servants. Yeah. Right. Yeah. We were set free from the bondage to Satan, sin, the world, flesh, to be able to serve as a bond servant, Jesus Christ. So yeah, I think that's very notable as as that's pointed out there, right there, uh, where it says who they recognize themselves and grant that your bond servants may speak your word with all confidence. Relating to Christ being the holy servant, but yet there's that, that sense of, of who we are. Of course, he took on the highest duty of all, dying on the cross. Mm-hmm. Well, we've been bought with a price. Uh, yeah, sure. It's for our good, and so everything that he does is good. It's a good thing. So it's a, it takes a different. Uh, it's a different nuance now, in that now look uh, look at where we are put, but yet it, it's all about serving Him and whatever He commands, we should desire to do, to be obedient.
So there's um, one thing about the commitment to God. Um, oh, by the way, I like this uh, in verse 27. Holy Servant Jesus, whom you anointed, God anointed him, That's and that's the word Messiah, Christos. In the Greek there, it's uh, dealing with uh, the Christos. Uh, christening, anointing, right? Whom you anoint. That means a prophet, priest, and king were anointed. Both Herod, Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles, those Gentile people, and then the peoples of Israel. So it really took on all the world. You know, they represented everybody. To do, and I like this, verse 28. We've already seen Peter preach this twice. And now the people are talking about this. And they're saying, okay, here's what man did, Jew and Gentile alike, but they did whatever your hand, God's hand, and your purpose predestined to occur. Peter has already preached about it. This was supposed to happen. It had to happen. Christ had to die on the cross. It was planned before the ages to say how terrible it is. Well, yeah, it is, but in another sense, no, it is beautiful because where would we be had He not died for our sins? And of course, in Acts 2, in that great sermon that Peter preached right there at Pentecost, uh, he says in verse 23, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross. Here's God's plan, but here's what they did. And it's that that same thought again. God's sovereignty, but man's responsibility. How do you figure that out with a human mind? It is God's mind that goes way over our thinking. It has to happen that way. He didn't make them sin, but still yet it's a part of the plan that they would crucify the Son, Isaiah 53 says, God was pleased to crush His Son. So, even though the Gentiles did it, even though you and I did it, even though the Jews did it, the Romans did it, God did it. Because it's part of the plan. He was in control of all this. That's an incredible thought. That is mind-blowing. It goes way beyond uh, the capacity of our brains. But that's incredible, isn't it? And here again, that's what the people are saying. Here's what you did. Here's, here, here's God. But here are the people. And to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined or predetermined to occur. God is in total control. That's, a, that's an amazing thing. Um, every time I think about it, just kind of taken by it. Yeah, there was a quote. Yeah. Um, Luke, who's writing this here, whenever he's using the word hand, you know, your hand, it's, it's God's hand, he's making the, the point that, yeah, there was a passivity concerned in the sense that God is allowing these men to do what they're doing with His Son. But at the same time, it is noted here, I'm trying to, oh, this, this comes from um, Calvin's commentaries, 
the, the event was not only governed in a passive way by God's purpose, but also actively by His power. God predestined those things, and even the evil deed of crucifying His anointed one, Jesus. And yet in no way is He responsible for the evil that the men who murdered Jesus, whatever they did when they committed that. That is, you know, that's just mind-blowing. Staggering. So that's renewing the commitment to God. How about the commitment to the Lord's people? There's been persecution. Peter, John, now they're together with the people and they start off with prayer. They pray from the Scriptures. It can't be wrong. They're thinking about a sovereign God, aren't they? In total control at such a, seems like a disastrous time, but it's a triumphant time because they're, they've been released. They're praising God. And here they are, the people get together. They're united. They care. I mean, they have a, a generous fellowship here. And they know what had happened to their companions. You've got a congregation over 5,000 by this time in a few uh, short weeks or days or whatever it is. And the generosity here that's involved is just just incredible how they uh, are able to care for each other. So not only are the people focused on God now, now they focus on the fact, okay, here's who God is, here's what He does, here's what He's all about, and now the people should be committed to community. They have a, a corporate mindset. Well, if we uh, kept reading on, verse 29, And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence. Lord, uh, take all of these evil men and get rid of them. They don't say that. They say, just give us confidence. Give us the power of your word to be able to speak this. While you extend your hand as you do your thing through us, healing and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So when they had prayed, the place where they would gathered together was shaken. They are all filled with the Holy Spirit. began to speak the word of God with boldness. So there we go. The, the prayer is granted. They're speaking the Word of God boldly. And, uh, and so then it gets into the, the uh, communal mindset, the corporate mindset. And they're sharing with one another what had happened. Uh, it leads to corporate prayer, as we've seen. Uh, they didn't view the church, I think, as uh, Americans often. But sometimes I think uh, we're individualist. You know, we're individuals. And we don't think of ourselves sometimes as a, as a meaningful type fellowship. And we, we see it working here in the congregation. It says in verse 32, "...of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. And with great power the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus." And abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales, lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. Not a communist practice, but it's something with 
whatever the needs were. Apostles would then help distribute that. Whoever wanted to give, they weren't forced to do that, but they were doing it out of their own hearts. They were putting that together. And a lot of people that were from all over um, different places who were visiting that city during that uh, time uh, who hadn't gone back home. Uh, or people in Jerusalem themselves were very, very poor. So they just... The Christians were body and they, they cared together, they shared together, they prayed together. And uh, so they are filled with God's Word, filled with His Spirit, committed to uni, unity. And I think they're definitely having a deeper knowledge of Christ because I think, I think they're getting it there. Um, they know that they have the same Christ. They have the same Savior, the same Lord. When weeks ago, none of them had that in common. Hardly any at all. And now all of a sudden, they all have something in common. Isn't that amazing? Having a deeper knowledge of Christ. Knowing the the spiritual family. The unity of heart and the soul is uh, the root. And the sharing of the personal belongings is the fruit. You have the unity, then the fruit comes out of that. And that's exactly where it leads into next. Then chapter five, Ananias and Sapphira show up. After the seventh what was giving and all the unity of one thing, and then the Lord sticks chapter five to there. What happened? I think at that time, of course, that's that's where it's kind of building up, but. there's been this persecution. And persecution can often strip people of a materialistic focus. You know, we have so many material goods that, uh, you know, we tend to always kind of draw to. And yet, we see here that that's not their focus. It's shifted now because they see the reality of the persecution. They see that if they say Jesus' name, they might be arrested too. But that doesn't matter because the focus is now upon the people that are around them. And as uh, they grow closer to the Lord, they grow closer together. And uh, I think of 1 Timothy chapter 6, all sorts of passages that deal with this. But... Um, 1 Timothy 6.18 Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. That was talking about the one God who richly supplies all of us and talking about the ones who have the riches. Uh, He says to be generous, ready to share. Storing up for yourselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future. Anyway, um, that's what was happening here. And um, they were just responding and doing whatever needed to be done. So they affirmed their commitment to God and Him being sovereign, having a high view of Him and what He's done and take it to the cross. I mean, there's a lot said in just this little section from 23 through 34. You, 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 what? Sovereign God. You have Christ being killed by Gentiles, but yet it's God's purpose, and that um, they are filled with God's Spirit, speaking the Word of God, and then they're sharing it amongst themselves. It's become 
lively, it's become life to them. So the apostles don't run away from their persecutors or run off to some monasteries. You thought, okay, now they're going to be holy men of God. And they go, you know, they could go to a well fortified place. Let's go someplace that's safe and uh, we can be really okay there. We'll be at a safe house. And that's not what they did. They didn't get behind the fortified wall. They responded by what? Praying for more boldness in their witness. And with great power, they give testimony to the resurrection of the dead. That seems to be the heart of the message always, doesn't it? God granted to the apostles to open the door for further witness. Open door. Open door. Yeah, I like that. Open door. Further witness. Focus was uh, not on themselves, but it was on what God wanted. God wanted them to do in His kingdom. He wanted their witness. He says, I'll give you power. And you go from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost part of the earth. Well, they're still in Jerusalem. But there's a powerful thing happening here. And they're not retreating. They're getting ready to, um, to engage. They already have done it. And because they were witnesses of His death, they were witnesses of His resurrection. They saw Him. They desperately know that people need a Savior. And because of this risen Lord, this is the one. And so, I think the, the, the persecution gave a, a right attitude. And I think the persecution can open a door for real effective witness. I think as we see here and as it goes on, but we'll, we'll see what happens further in, in the church there. But... Um, we may never have to suffer, or we might suffer very soon for the gospel, but um, we want to follow the example of Christ, example of these apostles, reaffirm our commitment to a sovereign Lord, reaffirm our commitment to the rest of the saints, the body of Christ that's not only locally here, but all throughout the whole body of Christ, all throughout the, uh, this country and throughout the, the rest of the world. And... Um, I think that our, our witness should be committed to the very work of the Lord there and, and having, whenever those doors are open, to be able to um, bring it forth, proclaim those messages, that message really, the message of the good news of Jesus Christ to all those who are perishing. And we uh, notice that it sure took effect. And uh, anyway, that's, what happens to the church? I ask a question here. Is it important to affirm that God is absolutely sovereign even over evil? Does it actually do us any good at all? We know we can get through it no matter what. Because He's there. How often does that come back? Would that be the implication then of teaching that evil events are actually evil events in God's sovereign plan? 
much as it seems impossible, it that's the way it is. The most evil event was what man did to Christ, God's Son at the cross. But yet, that was God's plan. And so, even in other events that may happen, and will happen, have happened, they are in God's sovereign will. And if they're not, we are people to be most pitied. Anyway, real stuff. It happened historically, happened biblically, and it happens today. It happens in our lives. This this sovereign God is there. Anyway, thank you guys for coming out tonight. Great to great to have visitors night uh, tonight. And uh, Alan, appreciate you coming out again. It was a pleasure just fellowshipping with you and talking about always talking about the things of the Lord. And Marcus, glad to, that you could come in tonight. Marcus, uh, matter of fact, I met uh, last Sunday right out in front of the church here, but I actually had talked to him on the phone back, uh, oh, a few months ago. And uh, you've been around town for uh, a few months? Yeah. And you uh, you live actually not too many blocks away from here. So it's certainly good to have you, Marcus. Enjoyed having you here. You're welcome anytime. You really are. We're about the Word of God. That's that's for sure. And so we'll uh, keep each other in mind. Keep each other in prayers, and and uh, realize that our sovereign God is working His will through us. And we just want to be obedient and whatever else He has in His will. Let's close. Father, thank you for this evening. Thank you for your Word, your truth. May it make an impact on us. May we be changed as uh, you changed those people in the days of the early church and you change it all throughout church history. May we just be submitting to you, as Paul said, being a bondservant. Help us learn about that and to be able to do it. Empower us and strengthen us. Have Scripture in our minds so when the... Uh, times come that are difficult that we are so filled with your word that uh, we can turn to those at any time and realize that uh, they're real and they're true. All for your glory and your son's name. Amen. Amen.